Well, open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. We started a new sermon series on the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, last week. Uh, we're calling this series, The King Has Come. Matthew presents Jesus Christ as our Messiah King who has come into the world to save us from our sins. And we're going to be looking at the whole chapter of Matthew 1 this morning. Uh, I debated splitting this chapter into two parts. I really wanted to preach a whole sermon just on the genealogy. That might be more exciting for me than it would be for you, but we actually are going to spend some time looking at it. There's some really neat stuff in the genealogy. But I want to start by just considering expectations. Expectations can be a dangerous thing. When you expect something to be a certain way or someone to be a certain way, you can have a very hard time accepting if they are different. There's a show, I think it's still on, I haven't seen it in a while, but have you heard of the show Undercover Boss? The Kind of the idea, the owner of the company, or the CEO, somebody really powerful, uh, goes undercover and goes back into their own company as a janitor, a salesman, whatever it is. And these people don't recognize them. And I think part of it is that you don't expect the the CEO of a multi-million dollar corporation to show up to clean toilets or something. You just, it doesn't connect. And so they just think there's somebody else that's shown up to do this job. They don't see the person for who the person truly is. We have the same issue when we come to Jesus. And the people of Jesus' time had the same issue when they met Jesus. They had expectations. Now, their expectations might be different than ours, but they had expectations. And those expectations often made it difficult for them to accept who Jesus is. And I find this often with people that are struggling to accept Jesus as God, as their King, as their Savior. It's often because they've already had these expectations of who he has to be and what he has to do in their life, and they have a hard time accepting him for who he truly is. Matthew's going to show us that Jesus is not the king that they expected, but he is absolutely the king that they need. And what Jesus does is far, far better. So we're going to start. As Matthew starts, introducing the kingly line of Jesus Christ. In their culture, at this time, it was important to prove that a king came from a royal family. And so one way to do that was to trace what's known as the genealogy. It's a listing of the the generations or the heritage of the king. So I would like to read for us the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1. Verses 1 through 17, you can follow along with me. I'll be reading out of the NIV. And I just want to remind you, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we're going to apply it to this. And I also want to say I am not an expert in the pronunciation of Hebrew names, so don't quote me on any of this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, 
Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matthan, Matthan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah." Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, we're not going to go through all of these names, because I'm sure you're familiar with all of them and their stories. (laughs) Hopefully, some of them sounded familiar, at least. I know a lot of them sound very similar to each other, but hopefully some of them you think, I've heard that story, David. You probably know a little bit about King David. Some of the others might have stuck out to you. But Matthew starts by introducing this genealogy, by introducing what the genealogy, the listing, is all about. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one who would come, the anointed and chosen by God, who would come to lead his family or his people. He is the son of David. So this is important for Matthew to show, especially to the Jewish people, This is your king. That's what it meant to be a son of David. This is the kingly line of the great king of Israel. And then the son of Abraham. Abraham was the person that God came to and established a covenant with Abraham to say, you and all of your offspring, you will be my people, my chosen people. These are the Israelites. So the Messiah had to be an Israelite, one of the covenant community of God. He had to be from the kingly line of David so that he was qualified to reign on David's throne. And he had to be the Messiah, the promised one of God. Matthew follows this up later on in chapter 1, verse 17, where he emphasizes again this idea of from Abraham to David. And then he goes from David to Babylon and from the Babylonian exile to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, why does he do this? Well, these are key turning points in the history of Israel. God established a relationship with Abraham. The world was falling apart, going off into sin. Noah and the ark had happened, but things hadn't gotten any better. Babylon had taken place in the tower, and they had tried to, man had kind of tried to organize their own religion in their own way. And God comes to Abraham and says, I am choosing you and your offspring, and I will bless you. And you will be the father of many nations. Now, this is important as we come to this passage where it talks about 14 generations, 14 generations. Because you may hear, you might run into somebody that go, wait a minute. Actually, if you look at some of the genealogies of the Old Testament, there weren't exactly 14. And it's true. Matthew is picking and choosing for a point and to make a point. 
When they did a genealogy, they were not trying to list every father and every son. The word father can mean forefather, such as grandfather or great-grandfather. So when they were listing a genealogy, it was not their goal to list every single generation. They were trying to trace a line. And Matthew is specifically choosing who to include so that he can get these three sets of 14. Even verse 1 shows this. Because we know that Jesus is not truly the direct son. Oh, I don't have a slide for that one. Sorry. We know in verse 1 it says uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Well, Jesus wasn't actually the son of David. And David wasn't literally the son of Abraham. He was a descendant. So we have to understand we're entering into their world, their way of using language. So if somebody comes to you and says, Matthew's numbers are wrong. Matthew is making a point. Now, what is the point that he is making. What we can see is that he's choosing three sets of 14. Why is he choosing these particular numbers? Three is often the number of perfection in kind of a Hebrew way of thinking. Seven is a number of completion. So these numbers have significance. So it could be three sets of two times seven. So you get your three sets of 14. It's possible. The Hebrews also had a a way of taking letters and assigning number values to them. And so every word had a numeric value. And the numeric value of David, if you added up the, the, what each of the letters represented, it adds up to 14. So some say maybe that's what he's talking about. So he's emphasizing this kingly line of David. The truth is we don't know. Matthew doesn't explain it. There's a lot of possible explanations for why he chooses the 3 and the 14s. We just don't know. I think what we can know is what Matthew is emphasizing by using these numbers. There are three turning points in God's relationship with his family or with his people that Matthew is emphasizing. The call of Abraham, the new king, the great king, David, and then there's this exile that seems like this complete loss of all of God's promises. And the Messiah is the greatest answer to the hope that was lost in the exile. Matthew is showing that Jesus' life and his ministry and his saving work are all a part of all of the Old Testament history that God has been bringing his people through. Now, it's important as we go through this book, hopefully you've heard this before, and you'll hear it several times throughout this, Matthew is a very Jewish book. He is writing to Jewish readers. He is writing to a Jewish culture. He is writing to people that knew their Old Testament, that cared about the Old Testament. So he's bringing in the Jewishness of Jesus Christ over and over and over again. But to this very Jewish audience, Matthew's going to make an important point. And he's tying it back in the covenant with Abraham in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You can see the whole promise to Abraham up there, but look at the very end. At the end of God's promise to Abraham, he says this, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Have you ever heard that that the Israelites are God's chosen people? Then that's true, right? But they were chosen for a purpose. You could even say they were chosen for a mission. God's mission for the Jewish nation of Israel was to use them to be a blessing for the entire world, not just for their own sake. And this is going to come up again and again throughout the book of Matthew, even right here in the genealogy. God had a plan to bless all people through his people, the Israelites. 
If we fast forward to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 19, you know this as the Great Commission. How does it start? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, understand, again, expectations, right? Expectations were the Messiah were for the, was for the Israelites. This was the Jewish Messiah. God was going to bless the Jewish people. And Matthew again and again says, yes, he is your Messiah. Yes, he is a blessing for you, but not just for you. You have a mission. And we see this right in the genealogy. In five people that are, I would say, completely unexpected to be included in this genealogy. And they are all women. There are five ladies listed in the genealogy. It was practically unheard of and unreasonable to list a woman in a genealogy. There was no need for it. The generations and the hereditary succession was passed from the male members of society. So they wouldn't list women in the genealogy. So why does Matthew do this? In verse 3, you'll see Tamar. Verse 5, you'll see Rahab. At the end of verse 5, you see Ruth. In verse 6, you have Uriah's wife. And of course, the most famous one in verse 16, you have Mary. Now, there are men in the list here that were shining examples of faith. There is zero commentary on them whatsoever. There are men in this list that were total losers. And there is zero commentary on them whatsoever. They are simply included to trace the lineage. By Matthew putting these women in, he is forcing his Jewish audience to say, wait a minute, why would you put her there? Let's look at some of these women. Why are they included? The first is almost all of them, with the exception of Mary and possibly Bathsheba, they are all Gentiles. They are not Jewish. So Matthew right away is showing that the Jewish Messiah doesn't have this pure blood line. He came from God reaching out to other nations and using these women even in the succession of the Messiah. We have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, as I said, probably was from the land of Israel, but she married a Gentile, which under their law kind of makes her a Gentile. So we have people outside of the people of God that are being included in the plans of God. The other thing we have is that these are messy people and messed up situations. I'm going to try to be delicate here because we have kids present. Tamar. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah. Go back to the text there. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Judah has sons through his daughter-in-law. Now, the Old Testament story is that she pretends to be a prostitute and he hires her as a prostitute and she gets pregnant. That is a messed up situation with messed up people doing messed up things. And you know how God uses it? He uses it to bring about the Messiah does not make what they did okay. Does not cover it over and say, oh, it's really no big deal because good things came out of it. No, it was sin and it was wrong, but God used it. Fast forward to Rahab. Guess what Rahab's job was? The prostitute. 
she lived in Jericho. Joshua was about to fight the battle of Jericho, right? He sends in spies and the spies are about to get caught. And who helps them? Rahab, a prostitute. God uses her. Ruth was a wonderful person. <laughs> Gentile, but a wonderful person. I, mean, I can't say anything bad about Ruth. The, the story of Ruth, the book of Ruth, is she's a shining example of faithfulness, but in a very messy, messed up situation in terms of the world around her. But she's a great picture of faithfulness. Uriah's wife, mother of Solomon. David sees Bathsheba bathing on a roof and says, I have to have her. Claims her as his own. She gets pregnant. David realizes he's made a big mistake. Brings her husband, Uriah, home for war. Tries to get him to spend time with his wife so that he can get out of this situation and have an excuse. It's not my baby. Uriah won't do it. David has Uriah put to death. Now ask yourself, because some people will say, oh, this is a a man-made book made up of man-made things just to make Jesus look good and make the people of God look good. No. These are unusual things to include in a genealogy. These make the people of God look really stupid. These are the ones you'd be like, yeah, we don't talk about them. And Matthew goes, oh no, we're talking about them. You need to know that this is where the Messiah came from. Now why? If you are a messy, messed up person with messed up situations in your life, guess what? God can use you. And he does. And I'm not just saying, well, in little small ways he can use you. No, he used these people to bring about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. That's powerful. God uses all people, all races, men and women, young and old, those the world looks up to and those the world looks down on. And God uses messy, messed up people in messed up situations. And to that I say, amen. Because if he can use them, He can use us. Now let's look at the entrance of Jesus into the world. Because Matthew has established the kingly line of Jesus, tracing the heritage from Abraham all the way down to Mary. And now we have to look at how Jesus comes. And this is your typical Christmas passage, right? So let's read this and look through it here. Oh, and actually that should go to uh, 25 there. That's my fault. Let's read 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is a very unexpected entrance for a king. You know the story. Joseph and Mary were poor. 
They were not who you would expect a king to be born to. They, they were not living in some wealthy palace somewhere. They didn't have servants and subjects to bow down to them. They were nobodies. Yeah, they had the right lineage, the right heritage, but they were nobodies. Further, he says in verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She is a virgin when she conceives and gives birth to Jesus Christ. People love to argue over this point right here. And they like to take this this, uh, prophecy that Matthew quotes out of... um, Out of Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel and say, well, did Isaiah really mean that it was a virgin? It could be a young woman. It could just be a a woman of marriageable age. And that's true. That's all possible in the Old Testament. But here's the question for us. What is Matthew saying? Matthew leaves zero wiggle room for anything other than Mary was a virgin. And the way Mary conceives of this child is through the Holy Spirit. Period. Period. There is no wiggle room here whatsoever. Verse 18, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. No wiggle room whatsoever. So when people come to you and say, well, the Bible doesn't really say that she was a virgin, virgin," that's garbage. Take them to Matthew. It's right there. It's all right there. This baby is from God, an absolute miracle gift to the world. This is not the king that they were expecting. This is definitely the king that they need. I want you to think a bit about Joseph because Matthew focuses on Joseph. Unlike Luke that focuses more on Mary and a little bit on Joseph, Matthew really has the spotlight on Joseph. Verse 19 tells us that Joseph is faithful to the law. Your translation might have he was a a righteous man. This means he's a good Jewish man. He followed the Old Testament law. He lived in an upright way to be an upright person before his God. This is good. Joseph is a good guy. And he's trying to do the right thing. Put yourself in his shoes. Mary is found to be pregnant, found to be with child. That probably means she's showing. There's a bump there. And people are going, wait a minute, Joseph, what's up? You're not married yet. You're engaged, but you're not married yet. And Joseph's going through all the scenarios in his mind. And all of them are going to make it very difficult for him to maintain that he is a righteous man. He's in a very, very difficult spot. If he upholds the justice of the law, he should publicly condemn Mary and separate himself from her, and the penalty of the situation that she is in is death. Now, by this time of the Jewish nation, that probably would not have been carried out, but that was the official penalty for being found to be with child prior to marriage. And it's possible that both of them could have been put to death if people thought he was the father. This is a serious situation for Joseph. If he does nothing, he will be seen to be guilty either of getting Mary pregnant before their marriage or of hiding her sin, both of which are bad. He is in a seemingly impossible situation. But notice what he chooses as a righteous man. I love this about Joseph. 
He chooses a way of mercy. He doesn't want to publicly condemn her. He doesn't want to cause hardship for Mary. But he does want to be faithful to God in his own life. Based on what he knows and the options given to him, he chooses pretty well. (laughs) And then God shows up, right? God sends an angel. In verses 20 and 21, the angel tells Joseph, Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. There are two really tough requests there. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. That puts Joseph in an awkward situation. Imagine every time he walks down the the road with Mary after that and people are looking sideways at them and they see her baby bump. This is a tiny town, right? People knew everybody. Everybody knew everybody's business. And every condemning glance at Mary is now also a condemning glance at Joseph. And God says to Joseph, you are to take that path. Do not be afraid. It's not that he was fearful. The word here isn't so much about fear. It's about a hesitancy to take a step in a certain direction. It's it's a, a desire maybe to go in a different path. And the angel says, no, no, you go this way. Take Mary as your wife. Walk down that path. Joseph's path was good. It was merciful. It was righteous. It followed the law. It checked all the boxes. But it was not the path that God wanted for him. And then the other interesting thing the angel asks, that I had never really realized what exactly this meant. You are to give him the name Jesus. In that culture, either the mother or the father could actually give the name to the baby. It didn't matter. But by intentionally telling Joseph, you are to give the baby the name. This was Joseph saying, this is my son. This is my child. I claim him as my own and I accept him as my own. I will give him his name. Imagine the shame that would have brought upon Joseph for the rest of his life. The shame it brought upon him through his neighbors, his town. But the glory it brings upon him now as we read about him. He was faithful and followed what God told him. Verse 22, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. You're going to see this phrase and phrases just like it throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew wants us to know that the events of Jesus's life are a part of God's eternal plan, are in fulfillment of things that God was doing in the Old Testament and continuing to do. So we're going to see that again and again. Jesus's entrance into this world is not what we would have expected. And we still struggle, I think, as people today to accept who Jesus is, partly because of that. He's not who we expected. He was born to a poor couple, born to a virgin, yet announced by angels, and God is involved in the whole process. In case you're not getting it yet, this is a king like no other. A king with a unique purpose. Let's look at that purpose Briefly, there are two names given at the end of Matthew. Actually, three if you include the title. In verse 18, the title is given of Messiah. 
Matthew's tying that into the genealogy to verse 1. He uses that title, verse 17. This is the promised one that would come. And Matthew's saying, don't miss it. This is your Messiah. But then he goes on and he gives two more names. Verse 21, he will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. There was, as best as I understand, no concept whatsoever among the Jewish people that the Jewish Messiah would in any way save them from their sins. Save them? Oh, yes. They wanted salvation. They wanted somebody to come in and save them from their oppressors. They wanted somebody to save them from the Romans and from the taxes and from the wickedness that was over them to justify them and make their lives better. They wanted that salvation. But to save them from their sins, they already had a system for that. Jesus, because he would save his people from their sins. Friends, this is the real need of your life. This is the real need of everybody's life. Our greatest need is not to fix situations in our life or in our world. Our greatest need is to be saved from our sins. How is that possible? Verse 23, Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you go all the way back, Garden of Eden, God is with Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve in the garden. You go to Abraham and God says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. It's all what God is doing for Abraham. You go to Moses and he rescues, through Moses, he rescues the Israelites out of Egypt and he promises them, I will be with you. And they see him, a cloud by day and fire by night. Then they build a tabernacle and his presence dwells among them. I will be with you. And now Matthew links all of this to Jesus. It is God who has come to be with us. It is God who is doing the saving. It is God who is doing the rescuing. Jesus is not some example of God. He's not some representative of God. He is God with us. And that truth will be crucial throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. What are your expectations of Jesus? You know, you might not even know you have them. That's the funny thing about expectations. You usually don't even know you have them until they come in conflict with something else. What are your expectations about Jesus? Too often, I think like Joseph, our expectations cause us to be afraid, to be hesitant to pursue the path that God has laid out for us. Well, I can't do that because I need to do this over here. And God's saying, no, trust me, follow me. Don't be afraid to take that step. In some ways, we face the same decision the angel gave to Joseph. Will we accept Jesus? Will we accept him not as our child, but as our Messiah, as our King, as our Savior? Will we accept Jesus? Jesus makes a grand entrance into the world but a grand unexpected entrance. And as we walk through the book of Matthew, we will see what Jesus does and we will continue to be amazed at how unexpected so many of these things are. We'll see what he teaches, how he treats people, 
and ultimately how he saves us through the cross and his resurrection. And then we'll get to Matthew 28. 28 where Matthew uh, records Jesus giving the marching orders to each one of us. Now you go and you make disciples of who? All nations. All peoples. The story of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ continues the story of what God had done in the Old Testament. And it continues right through the life of Jesus to the Great Commission through Acts. And we are a part of that ongoing story today. And so I pray and I hope that we will allow God to shape our expectations through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what joy we have in knowing that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. But Father, even as I say that, I know that my own expectations so often cloud who Jesus truly is. And I think we all struggle with that. We, we want Jesus to do certain things or to be a certain way to meet our expectations. And I pray as we walk through your word, confront our expectations, redefine them, or blow them away. Shape us to think rightly about your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, as we understand that we are a part of this ongoing story, this ongoing history, we praise you that we can see, even in the genealogy, these messy, messed up situations and messy, messed up people. And God, today, I pray that we would give ourselves to you and say, God, use us. Not to excuse who we are or what we've done, but to use us for your purposes and your glory. That people would look to your son, Jesus, as their Messiah, as their King, as their Savior. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.